Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I want to thank all of you so much for all of your support. The 100th episode with Judd Apatow was incredible, and your letters and your emails and your texts and your tweets have been fantastic, and I'm very, very grateful. I'm also very grateful that a lot of you have gone to my website, barrykatz.com slash podcast, and clicked on the Amazon banner and purchase things through that banner, which doesn't cost you anything, but Amazon dedicates a few shekels to the Barry Katz Jewish Sons College Fund, which is a very good thing, and I'm very thankful that you guys are so supportive and do that for me and send me those great letters and emails telling me that you did so. That's so nice. Today, I'm very excited because I'm interviewing somebody who embodies personality within his name, and I'm talking about producer extraordinaire David Friendly. I've known David for a while. I was fortunate enough to take a meeting with him long ago where I met him and I loved his personality and what he was all about. And I was hoping one day I could get him in to the office to sit here. And I'm grateful about relationships because Phil Rosenthal invited me to lunch one day at a beautiful restaurant in Hollywood. And sure enough, who comes in and sits down with us, but David Friendly. And it was a really wonderful, wonderful experience. And he is here. And as always, you know that I tend to look at my guest and think of something to say as a cold open that I don't plan. 
And I think the the thing that comes to mind, and I don't want to get sad here for anybody because I want to celebrate what I'm about to say, is our business lost an iconic figure July 6th, and that's Jerry Weintraub. And I had the fortune of meeting Jerry Weintraub only for the first time in my life two weeks ago where I was invited to meet with him and I was invited to introduce him at his final speaking engagement he ever made at the Malibu Chabad Center in Malibu, California. And it was really an honor to do that, to talk with him, to introduce him. And he was I believe going to do the podcast very soon and he obviously will not be here to do it. So I just wanted to share, like when I look across from David friendly, I think to myself, there's different ways of producing. There's different personalities in how to produce and there's different ways to be successful in anything you do. And, and I'm sure in any job you have, you're in the office or wherever you are or on a set or at the law firm you know, and there's one guy who's successful, who's got this really, really calm, genteel personality that you never expect them to ever lose their temper at all. And then there's another guy in the office who's successful, who literally is a type AAA personality. When he walks through the hallway, you can hear him walking everywhere he goes, his heavy footsteps. There's an energy when they walk in the room where the hair on the back of your neck stands up or else you just walk on eggshells, or else you have so much respect for the person in a different way, the, the people that they've hung with, that you're almost in fear. And that doesn't mean that it's good or bad. I'm just saying there's different ways of doing things. And for me, I've always been the kind of guy that responded to calm. I've always been the kind of person that felt like talent and anybody around or associated with talent or in any walk of life, I always thought that they would appreciate it if maybe I handled things with calm. I think to myself sometimes when I'm at home with my kids or with the dog or with situations, and I can hear myself saying things that, that I would never be that way in business. And I think, my God, I could be that other side, that other guy if I just use this personality sometimes there, and I always fight myself against it. Sitting across from David Friendly, and I think of Jerry Weintraub, and just so you know a little background on Jerry Weintraub, and obviously this is an homage to him within this introduction. This was a guy who had similar beginnings, at least in terms of their geographical plight as David Friendly, because David Friendly grew up in New York in Riverdale, and Jerry Weintraub in Brooklyn. And they both have produced movies that have made millions and millions and millions of dollars. And they both are groundbreaking people who've done a lot of different things that you wouldn't expect them to do. And they both have a six degrees of separation with George Clooney because David's dad was the legendary news producer and CBS president Fred Friendly, who George Clooney portrayed in the Academy Award-nominated film Good Night, Good Luck. And of course, Jerry Weintraub produced all the Ocean's 11, 12, and 13 movies with George Clooney. And when I met Jerry Weintraub, I saw a man who obviously was a guy who'd legendary, had been in the business for 50 years. When I sit across from David Friendly, I see a guy 
who's been in the business 25 years, but I see somebody whose trajectory is such that he's on that path. He's on a path where he could really take things to the next level if it's possible. And when I say if it's possible, because after I read uh, David Friendly's bio to you, you'll see that his movies have made more money than God and they've been incredibly successful. But I think he'll agree and everyone out there will agree whether you're calm or you're not calm in business, your goal is always to take things to the next level. And Jerry Weintraub started off promoting John Denver. John Denver, everybody. So this guy's backstage listening to Thank God I'm a Country Boy. And then down the line his career, he's producing movies with George Clooney that are getting nominated for Academy Awards or producing documentaries, which also David Friendly is doing that we're going to talk about. I believe Jerry Weintraub did Behind the Candelabra, which won, I think, 11 Emmy Awards. And so I see David Friendly, I sit across from him, and I see somebody who's on the path of Jerry. And having met Jerry, I just want to share with all of you that whatever job you're in, it's not just about doing one thing and doing one thing well. Yes, there's a lot of people who do one thing and one thing well, and they're very successful, and they're very happy. But my feeling is this, and I could be alone, but my opinion is is that if you're going to do something in this world, chances are you have more than one skill set. You have more than one talent. You have more than one thing that you can do. And if you're just going along and doing one thing and doing one thing well, not only I think are you doing a disservice to yourself, but you're doing a disservice to all the people that you're going to inspire along the way. And my feeling is, is that as I sit with David, he's inspired me. And when I met Jerry Weintraub, and it was a great loss, he inspired me also because he let me know that I think and I hope that I'm on the right path when I do different things like this podcast in my spare time that's reached so many people. And so my message to all of you out there is don't be afraid to do more than one thing. Don't be afraid to go out there and explore more dreams. Yes, you may fail, but then when you fail or if you fail, there's always the next talent you have. And that's my message for today. Just go for your dreams, go for what you can do, and keep thinking about your talents and how you can exploit them in the best possible ways. And I can guarantee you, your life will expand to new horizons. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Exciting day today, David Friendly. I am going to give him the proper introduction. David Friendly is an Academy Award-nominated producer, best known for his Best Picture nominee, Little Miss Sunshine. 
He began his career in journalism at age 22 when he was named staff writer for Newsweek, and he actually had an office on the third floor of the building that we are taping this podcast in. Incredible. He later joined the Los Angeles Times where he was an entertainment reporter and had his own weekly column, First Look. As I mentioned before, his lineage is great because his father was the legendary news producer and CBS president, Fred Friendly, who was portrayed by George Clooney in the Academy Award nominated film Good Night and Good Luck. He has been a film producer and motion picture executive for over 25 years, and during his career he has produced over 25 films to date. That's 25 movies, 25 films. It reminds me of 1975, the Red Sox, when they lost the World Series. Denny Doyle said, what, you know, asked him, what kind of personality do you have in the clubhouse? And he said, I'll tell you what kind of personalities we have. 25 guys, 25 cabs. But that has nothing to do with David Friendly. <laughs> One movie a year average. That's incredible. He's worked with some of the most prestigious directors, including Ron Howard, Ed Zwick, and the team of Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. Friendly recently completed principal photography on his first documentary, Sneakerheads, which he wrote, produced, and directed. His television pilot, Queen of the South, based on the novel La Reina del Sur, and it will air on USA starting in January. In addition, Friendly's next feature film project, IT stars Pierce Brosnan and is filming right now. As we speak. Friendly is the producer and creative force behind the hugely profitable Big Mama's House franchise, which has generated three films which have grossed over $400 million worldwide. In 2006, Friendly formed his own production company, Friendly Films, prior to launching his own company. He partnered with financier Mark Turltob and former Deep River Productions. During his six-year tenure at the company, he produced Little Miss Sunshine with Greg Kinnear and Abigail Breslin and Laws of Attraction with Pierce Brosnan and Julianne Moore. Friendly was president of Davis Entertainment from 1994 to 99 and produced numerous films there. This led to a first-look producing deal at 20th Century Fox, where he eventually produced Big Mama's House with Martin Lawrence, Here on Earth with Josh Hartnett, Courage Under Fire with Denzel Washington and Meg Ryan, Out to Sea with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, and Dr. Doolittle with Eddie Murphy. Hacks. <laughs> Friendly's movie career began at Imagine Entertainment, where he executive produced numerous films there, including My Girl with Macaulay Culkin, For the Love of Money with Michael J. Fox, and Greedy with Kirk Douglas. During his tenure at Imagine, he rose to present the production, where he also oversaw The Burbs, The Dream Team, Kindergarten Cop, and Backdraft. Presently, Friendly serves on the board of the Producers Guild of America and produced the 2009-2010 Producers Guild Award Show. For the last 15 years, he's been an active member of the Friends Board with the Saban Free Clinic, which provides affordable, quality health care to those most in need. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome <laughs> a very, very friendly and wonderfully talented producer, David Friendly. Thank you. That that was some introduction. I um, the cold opening was incredible. First of all, because I would I love to be grouped with somebody like Jerry Weintraub because to me, and I don't have half of his financial success for sure, and maybe not even half of his creative success. But here's the thing about all producers, which I believe firmly, is that all great producers are great salesmen. That is the fundamental first rule of producing and there was no better 
salesman. I had the privilege of meeting him several times than Jerry Weintraub. I think he could have sold anything to anybody, and he was a dreamer, and he was a promoter, and all of those things are what got me interested in the movie business. Uh, it's ironic because, you know, it takes an outsider to make this analogy. Jerry came out of the music business, and I was a concert promoter in college. I went to Northwestern, and I spent four years producing concerts, and I mean every kind of band you could imagine from we did Jerry Garcia in the small auditorium as a solo act, and I had to get him. First thing he asked me was to find him an ounce of pot, which was not hard to do at, <laughs> at, at a college in 1978, and all the way up to the Beach Boys, which I did two shows with them in the big hall, and, um, you know, like a Jerry Weintraub, and I, I was thinking about it as you were doing the cold opening, I had this rule when I was the concert promoter that anybody that I booked, I had to introduce. Simple. And the reason for it was I felt that I could meet girls if I introduced the band. So along comes, I booked B.B. King. I only booked acts that I liked, and I love B.B. King, great blues guitar player. And uh, they came to me and they said, you know, here's the thing. B.B.'s been doing this for a long time, and he's always introduced by his musical director, and it's choreographed, and, and uh, so would you mind if we did? And I said, yeah, I would mind. I introduce all the bands. Just teach me. So we had to have a rehearsal, and I had to come in on cue, <laughs> and I had to say the greatest uh, blues guitar player in the history, you know, whatever the introduction was, and I had to hit the note, and I did it. And I tell the story because... I didn't know any better. I mean, basically, I probably should have surrendered, but I didn't because that was my compensation. I never got paid a nickel, and it was my favorite job I ever had. And I'm going to tie it back into, you mentioned my father, Fred Friendly, who was a very serious, smart guy, a fantastic father and a great uh, journalist. I mean, he was legend. He's growing up around a legend, right? And... When I got graduated Northwestern, I had several job offers to be a concert promoter, work for a concert promoter, Jerry Michelson, who was in Chicago, and various people. I turned them all down because I didn't think my father would approve, which, looking back, is kind of crazy, but it is what it is. And I went to Newsweek as a summer intern. Uh, I thought, well, I'll do this for a, for a couple of months, and I ended up staying there for six years. And as you pointed out, I was staff writer there when I was 22. Uh, which I was not ready for. Uh, but I spent nine years in journalism, mostly, mostly to please my father, which I don't think I've ever said on the record. Now, it turned out to be great training. I don't think of it as a mistake because I think journalism trains you for lots of other things really well. I learned to write fast, write well, and articulate ideas quickly, which, by the way, served me incredibly well when I left the LA Times and went to work for Brian Grazer, who really was my mentor. I call him my reluctant mentor because <laughs> he was my boss, who had a very limited attention span. I'm not saying anything he wouldn't say. And I had to read scripts and pitch it to him in sometimes under two minutes. I specifically remember one day going in to pitch him a story and he just lay down on the floor and he said, you're killing me. What happens? Just tell me what happens. <laughs> and uh, so Ironically, I think it all kind of ties together because I think the journalism training turned out to be exactly what the seasoning I needed 
to then make my way into the movie business. But I had the bug in college when I was promoting concerts because a promoter is a producer. It's all the same as far as I'm concerned. So I would do the posters. I would pick up the band at the airport. Uh, the Beach Boys, I remember, this was really interesting, Had in the, they have a thing called a rider in a contract. Yeah, just so you know, every concert act has what's called a technical rider, which not only uh, details where they want their microphones and where they want their equipment and all the spots that they want everything, the lighting, but it also has their requests for the dressing room, which are some of the most unusual things you could ever find. In yes, and in this case, the Beach Boys wanted avocado and banana sandwiches on dark bread, which in the winter in Chicago is not easy. But we found it. We 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 uh, we fulfilled the obligation of the rider, and you know, I just loved it. I loved putting on a show. I never asked for a nickel. It never occurred to me. I made the money, the school, thousands of dollars uh, over the course of four years, and. To this day, it was my favorite job, and and um, I think there's a lesson in that, which is something you were talking about earlier. I think people can do a lot more than they think, but you're going to do what you love the best. Yeah, and I think what you said, which is fascinating for our audience, and I always try to stress, and a lot of the guests stress, is the fact that you had an offer uh, multiple offers for money, more money than you'd ever made in your entire life. And regardless if it was about your dad or whatever, the fact is, is that you went to do something for free instead, something where you felt might be better off because your dad said you'd be better off doing that. And somebody who you respected told you that. And instead of taking the money, you struggled and didn't have much money to do things, but you went for it and you believed if you did a great job in there, you would move up. And clearly, of course, you did a great job because you were a staff writer at 22 years old. How many staff writers were there at 22? Zero. And let me just say this. I was surrounded by some of the great writers in New York. There was a sports writer called Pete Axnell, they called him the Axe. Legendary. The, the guy that wrote about polit politics and national affairs, Peter Goldman one of the greatest print journalists ever. Um, so I was surrounded by this enormous talent. And there I was moving along very quickly, partially because of my own aggressiveness, but also because of who I was. I was Fred Friendly's kid. He must be good. You know, I really believe that was part of it. What was really interesting about the experience is, and it ties into things that happened to me later in life, is uh, when I was in a corner, under the most stress, very often I did my best work. Um, and so at Newsweek, it was, a, it was a crazy experience because they would have reporters in the field, and the reporters would send a file in. They'd be doing a story about the surge in, in uh, bottled water. This was a new thing in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. Perrier versus Pellegrino. And I, got a, I was writing in the business section, so... I would get files from all over the world. This is, this is what's happening with bottled water in Texas. This is what's happening in California. It's called a roundup. And these files would come in as the week progressed. And you'd have about, you know, 50 pages of files from all over the country on Thursday. And then on Friday, you had to pitch your editor and write the story and turn it in in like four hours. I'm 22 years old. 
I look back and I think, how did I do that? And I remember being very nervous, but being very exhilarated by it. And cut to later in life, I, I mentioned before, I had this very difficult and very inspiring boss who was very demanding. You know, Brian Grazer, boss says, Brian Grazer and Ron Howard, and they wanted results and they wanted things quickly. And the pressure that I was under as a journalist served me well under them. If you met these guys in a room, you'd think they were just a lot of laughs and really fun and, and very entertaining because they are, but they were intense and they wanted to win and they were going to win. And if you wouldn't help them win, you were going to be out. And that was just the way it was. So the story I like to tell about my early years uh, at Imagine was that there was a writer's strike in the 19... I left the paper in 1987 and the writer's strike happened in 1988, I believe. And I get this call one day from my boss and it's Brian. And he says, Hey, how you doing? I said, okay, kind of quiet. Can't really meet with any writers because there's a strike. And I want to explain that when there's a strike going on, the guild will not allow their, their members to meet with producers or studios. They are just on the sideline. I just want to share yes. something with the audience. As in life, not everyone goes by the rules, and there are certain producers that would meet with writers on the side, but I don't think Brian and Ron were those kind. No, they were playing by the rules. But Brian said to me, just because there's a strike on doesn't mean we're going to keep you around. You better find us a movie. And that's what I remember. The last thing he said was, you better find us a movie. And then the rest of the sentence was implicit, but it was like, or you're going to be out of a job. That's what he was saying. And I hung up the phone and I thought, I was pretty successful in journalism. I'm at the <laughs> LA Times. I have my own column. Why did I do this? Of course, I didn't anticipate a strike coming or anything. So I hung up the phone and I called an old a friend of mine at, at CAA. The young agent later tragically killed himself named Jay Maloney. Of course. He was a big supporter of mine. Great guy. Love him and miss him. And I said, Jay, Brian just almost fired me. What do I do? And he said, all right, take a deep breath. He said, I'm going to send you a list of every producer in the town. We have such a list. It was typed at the time. It wasn't even on a computer. And you should go down that list, see who you know, and see if somebody has a script that's available but didn't get made that you could take on. So he sends the list over. It's alphabetical. I get to the D's, and there is Rafaela De Laurentiis. Rafaela De Laurentiis was the daughter of Dino De Laurentiis, one of the legends of the business. Legendary action movie thriller kind of producer. At the time, she is running the company, De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, DEG. I called her up. I said, Rafi, I got to come see you. I had profiled her in the LA Times. There was a famous photograph for the story where she had her feet up on the desk, bare feet. So she bare feet up on the desk. And she said, oh, you sound terrible. What's going on? I said, I got to come see you, and I'm not leaving without a script. You have to give me a script. So I drive over to her office, and I said, what have you got? She said, well, we don't have much, but there's a script, but you guys would never make this. It's about firemen. I said, sounds great. What is it? Let me see it. <laughs> 
And the script was backdraft. And I take the script <laughs> and it's sort of like in limbo. There's some producers on it who are, who I knew, Richard Lewis and Penn Densham and John Watson. And they have a company called Trilogy, but it's just, it's not going to get made there. And she says, maybe you can get it made with your guys and we can come aboard. And I said, don't worry about that. Let me just, let me just read it. So I read the script and it's sort of a programmer. It's good. It, it needs some work, but I like it. And I put it on what they call weekend read. Weekend read is obviously everybody at the company can put something on the read and you would take home very often 10 to 12 scripts a weekend. Before email, Yeah, you'd see these agents and producers in elevators. Like the strap was always breaking because they'd have all these scripts in their bag. And you'd wonder, how do these people have a personal life? So now here's the genius of, of Brian. So I put it on weekend read. And there's the Monday morning staff meeting, and he says, this script backdraft, what does everybody think? And he goes around the room, and people are dumping on it. It reads like a TV movie. I've seen it before. This is okay writing, nothing special. And he gets to me, and he goes, well, why'd you put it on Weekend Read? And I said, I thought the fire was like a character. I liked the brothers' relationships, and it just seemed, I think, firemen are heroic. It's interesting to me. And he goes in front of the whole company. Well, Ron agrees he's going to direct it. And the room goes dead silent. <laughs> and then the backpedaling begins. Well, it did have some good things. I did like this. And everybody's reversing their field. I get out of the room. I go in my office. And Brian comes down, knocks on the door. And he high fives me. This is a week after he was just about to fire me. And that's when I learned that you can always turn things around and you may have a terrible day as a producer on Monday and having your best day the next day. And the main thing is to just keep at it. Stay in the game. Fantastic. That's all true. Every bit of that story. That's one of the best stories we've ever had here. That is (laughs) awesome. Can I go now? (laughs) (laughs) You are not allowed to leave. Um, But also, I just want to finish that by saying that's why Brian is as successful as he is. He knows how to motivate people. He knows how to get the most out of them. And directing to what to what you were talking about, calm versus the storm, I believe that he manages with, or used to, I don't know if he still does, because it's been a long time, but he managed with the storm, and he created anxiety. And I have to say, he got the best out of me. I, I, I did some of my best work for him. I found my girl, backdraft, kindergarten cop. I was on a roll. And I was petrified most of the time. <laughs> yeah, he always operated in the storm. And what was strange was when you would meet him in that beautiful office and the colors yeah. and everything, yeah. incredible, and loved all the family photos. And just, it just seemed so casual, didn't it? You'd, you'd sit down there and, and you'd meet with him. And again, it's what you said. You know, the best producers are salespeople. And so they show that side of them as a salesperson and calm. Never showed that he had a short attention span, sat, long time, wonderful. And Ron, I believe there was a yin and a yang between the both. I don't believe Ron was the storm, but it was more like a good cop, bad cop kind of thing. You could tell me differently. But I think what's important is, is, is to know that uh, Ron was like some guy that came over on the Mayflower. I never saw him sick a day in his life. I never saw a better work ethic in my life in anybody. And one of the sharpest minds I've ever seen. But there was a symbiotic relationship there. You could call it good cop, bad cop, whatever cliche you want to use. 
They each have their respective roles, and they complement each other beautifully. And I think what was tricky for me was I always knew what Brian was thinking, but I never knew what Ron was thinking. That was the difference. Brian was transparent. He was angry. He was happy. He was proud. He was embarrassed. With Ron, you, you just didn't know, which was also kind of cool. And I just want to share something that ties into <laughs> everything we've been talking about. When I was a young boy, one of my favorite characters on television was on the Andy Griffith Show, a black and white sitcom, Andy of Maybury, RFD. <laughs> and his son was Opie. And that was Ron Howard. Mm. And I related to him because I was a little blonde kid in my little town. When I was a teenager growing up, my favorite television show was Happy Days. And Ron Howard was an actor as a teenager, or at least a young 20-year-old, on Happy Days. Then when I went to college, I went to see a movie with my friends with Daryl Hannah mm -hmm. called Splash. And I loved the movie. And I wasn't paying much attention until the credit came up, directed by Ron Howard. And then I get more in the business, and I attend an Emmy Awards one time, and Arrested Development wins the Emmy for Best Television Show. And who accepts the award but producer Ron Howard, television producer. And then, of course, the Academy Award so many times as a film producer winning an Academy Award. So this guy started off as a young actor. You left out the music man when oh, he was sorry. three years old. That's right, the music man when he was three years old. So this guy's gone through every incarnation and done all sorts of different talents and gone for it and just didn't stick with one thing. I have to ask you something about... Um, Brian Grazier and the management style because you too produce and you are in charge of many people when you're on a set you noticed that that style of the storm got the most out of you when you were a journalist the fire four hours get it done now or you're fired Ron Howard there's a writer strike if you don't produce you're fired so you responded well to that but you're on a set you don't operate like that. That's not your management style, yet you've noticed all through your career that for you, that's the style that works best for you. Right. Look, I think 90% of the time I, I am not like that. Uh, but I did find in me, and if I hadn't found it, I think I would have failed. I did find in me there's a 10% part of my personality that comes out in extreme stress and when the stakes are highest where I just become a different person and I don't, I'm not afraid of that person. I'm okay with letting that person out, but it literally, I'll give you an example. What am I talking about? I'd say 90% of the time I'm a great listener. I was a journalist. Most people in our business do not listen. Well, they love to talk, but they don't listen. When you're a journalist, you have to listen because you're searching for pearls and quotes and things. So my strength would be director came down hard on the, on the costume designer, didn't like what was put up that day. The costume designer went off in tears. I'm the guy that would go into the office of the costume designer and bring him or her back. 
come on, you're having a tough day. You're going to turn this ship around. I know you've got great skill. You know you've got great talent. Let's write this ship. It wasn't your best day, but tomorrow will be better. That's me 90% of the time. 10% of the time, I uh, this other person comes out that you have to have as a producer. You just have to have it, which is, I'll give you an example. We were making the third Big Mama's House, which was the hardest one to get made because looking back, you know, that's not an easy sell, part three. Part two is hard enough. Part three is really hard. And it's also harder, just so you know. The first Big Mama's House, you have Martin Lawrence. He's the star, and he gets paid a certain amount of money for that gig. No one knows if it's going to do well or not. He's still a big star, but he's making a certain amount of money. Then when that movie makes over $100 million or $200 million, they do a sequel. Then Martin Lawrence probably gets paid three to four times more than what he made in the first one and a much better back-end participation and a much greater sense of entitlement every time he goes to a new movie. But here's what happened. So, So we're making the movie for this company, New Regency, which did the first two, but in collaboration with Fox. It was a co-production. This one, they're on their own. And I'm told... If you get the budget to this number, we'll make the movie, which I'm excited about. I want to get the third one made. Explain to our audience before you go into the story this conundrum that every producer goes through. Whereas in these days and times, the budget for movies, it's very strange because even in television, you know that you see a budget for something. It's like $1.7 million for a half-hour sitcom. And you know that some teenage kids in Peoria made a half hour that looks just as good as the one that's for $6 in a subway token. And so you know as a film producer that technically you can these days make things work, but back then it wasn't as easy. So explain the conundrum of how you bring something down to a number and how that conversation always seems to happen with you and how do you do it? Well, you wind up, the short answer is you wind up chasing incentives okay so so my life most of the travel in my life has been on movies i've made movies three movies in ireland i've made movies in italy i've made movies in louisiana new york atlanta and you chase the incentives so in the end these incentives which are basically states saying come make your movie here we'll give you a percentage of your budget back if you come make the movie here you can actually, along with other cost-saving measures, you can make a sequel for less than the one before, which never used to be the rule. So, so in this case, we, were, we made the third one uh, in um, Atlanta because the incentives were very strong there at the time. And when we hit that number, and I thought we were being greenlit, they came back to me and said, yeah, we said that, but you need to take three or four million more out. And I had taken everything out I could, and I became an animal. That's the only way I describe it. I remember where I was. I was in Mark Berg's office off of La Brea. Mark Berg, a was, great manager and producer as well, did the Saw movies. And I screamed into the phone where the entire office were sort of peeking up over their cubicles like what's going on here and i said i worked too hard and too long to get to this point 
You're going to live up to your word. You guys are making this effing movie. I did everything you asked me to, and you can't take this away from me now. And the next day, the movie was greenlit. And I don't believe if I had not gone to that 10% part of me that we ever would have gotten it made. Without that, it was it was like somebody else taking over your personality and your and you get off the phone and you're kind of shaking. And you go, I either just killed my career or I, I'm going to get a green light. One of those two. So what I was saying to you is I, I definitely feel that most of the time I'm not that guy. That's not my style. But I think you have to have that gear. You have to be able to close. A, a successful producer is one who doesn't get almost to the finish line. They get there. They get there, and they complete the race. And the hardest part in making movies is the, I call it the red zone. It's not that tough to get right up to the 10-yard line. It's really hard to get in the end zone. And the hard part is not uh, necessarily how the movie does, because you're not really in control of that. The hard part is closing and starting. That's the hardest part, that little... 10-yard red zone. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Do you feel if the roles were reversed and you were in Brian Grazer's position and you were managing yourself with your style, would you be as successful today? I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever have had a chance. Everything I learned that served me as a producer was from that foundation. Without them, I don't have a producing career. So in other words, like if your style, if somebody were in that position with your style of producing, and your style of administration overseeing you in those early years, you wouldn't have been successful. I'd be doing something else. I, really, I, I truly believe that. Uh, here's what I learned. First of all, I learned from Ron that I wasn't working very hard. And by the way, he never sat down and said to me, hey, you're not working very hard. But by his example, I realized that my work ethic sucked. Okay? And I learned from Brian that I was going to have to amp up my ambition and amp up my intensity and amp up my desire. And I had to fight uh, that it wasn't going to come to me. I had to fight for it and take it. Those were the two things I learned from that.
I didn't have either of those things. What is it, do you think? Because I think to myself, when I think of you as a producer and you hire all these people around you, they are inspired by you, and they do credit you as somebody who has helped them start mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. producing careers and what they're doing. You hire the people around you that work with your style that you know people will thrive, but maybe if they had Brian Grazier, they would just wilt and die. They might fall apart. <laughs> so you hire the people right. around you that fit your style. I think so. I think that's, I think it's a little bit like when you're putting together a movie uh, or a TV show or something, you're building a city, right? So, so who's going to be the postman? Who's going to be the fireman? Who's going to be a good chief of police, right? And you want this community to function together well. Well, you're going to pick people that you feel are talented, but you're also going to be drawn to personality types. For example, uh, you might be interviewing on a television show. You have a, 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 a producing director. A producing director is somebody that would say do the second episode and the fifth episode but they're also going to be there to instruct the other directors who come in to do hours. And you want somebody in that position that can kind of coach the others and be a, almost like a, you know, a leader. And, a, and, a, and, a, and for me, then I want somebody come and, and who's going to listen. And, and, and maybe for one episode, I want the flashy guy who's going to fire somebody on the first day and, and create a ruckus, but I don't want that guy around all the time. So it just depends what you're doing. But I think when you're when you're when you're making a movie, you're creating a community, and you're 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 cognizant. How is this person going to work with that person? If I hire this DP, how is how are they going to do with this? this For those of you who aren't in the yeah. business, DP director of photography. Yeah. Sorry, so that was a long winded. No, it's great. David will tell you. Sometimes you have a film that you're doing that doesn't have a big budget and you're hiring a director that's not when you had somebody like Tom Shadiak in his heyday it's making 10 million dollars a film but like you say when you have certain budgets for things that you know you're going to have sometimes you have to hire a first time director then you want to hire a director of photography that has years and years of experience under great to compliment great director. that person that's a very very good point I'm good for one, one a year. One depends on the other, but I will. I will love this story because it, it it happened and it, and it and it really taught me to trust my instincts. Uh, we were doing Little Miss Sunshine, and everybody in town knew the script and liked it, and a lot of directors were interested in it. and And we started. My partner at the time was Mark Turtle Tab, who you mentioned earlier, and I was producing the movie with. Uh, these guys, Albert Berger and Ron Yerksa, who are a great independent production team. We were all doing it together. But uh, these directors started coming in. We started interviewing people to direct the movie. And it came down to a very seasoned director and two newcomers, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. And when John and Val came in, and it was a great lesson to me, we met in the conference room. And I remember walking into the conference room, and there were color pictures on the wall of what the movie would look like they had uh some sort of music device to play what the soundtrack would sound like and they gave an incredible pitch about how they saw the movie at this point they had only done music videos and commercials they'd never made a movie the other candidate was a seasoned veteran 
who really liked the script, we knew could pull it off and would do a good job. But there was something tantalizing about these people. They were so into the movie, they had thought about it. How many movies had the other candidate directed since you're not going to tell me their name? A dozen. A dozen movies. Yeah, and some very successful. And we went with the newcomer. And this is a great lesson for all of you listening. It was gutsy. It was gutsy, but you would not have hired them if their presentation wasn't 10 times better than the seasoned veterans. What I talk about before, it's like when you've done 12 movies, you have a sense of entitlement. It's like that old story with Shelley Winters when she's asked to audition for the movie, and she's like, audition? Give me the address of that director. And she goes in, and she stands there. He's like, well, where's your audition? And she reaches through her bag, takes out her two Academy Awards, slams them (laughs) on his desk, and says, there's my fucking audition. And and that's what it is with the people who don't want to make a presentation because they're like, look, you want a presentation? Watch my fucking 12 movies. Yeah. But these people went in, they wanted it more, and it ties into what you talked about with the work ethic of people. And this is something I want to stress to everybody out there because I'm sitting in front of a lot of young people here. There's probably eight people witnessing this podcast, assistants, interns. And the thing is, is that when you're in a group of people working in any firm or any set or everywhere you are, there's going to be one person who is doing more than everybody else to get to the next level. And then there's going to be the 10th person out of 10 that's doing that. And if you're out there and you're listening to this, think about your office, think about wherever you are, think about whatever job you're doing and think about what number you are in the rankings. If you were just looking down from the heavens or in the, in the owner's office or in Ron Howard or Brian Grazer's office with all the people, who's the person that they believe is the go-to person that gets there before everybody else leaves after everybody else and is always generating more for that company. And that's the person number one. And that's what you should be doing out there to figure out how you can be that person. I, I agree with that. And I also think that that person has great radar. That's another th- a component of it. In other words, I've seen people come in and they're doing a dog and pony show and they've got too many pictures and they're talking too much and they've lost you 10 minutes into the presentation because they haven't gotten through the first act. So what I would say to, about John and Val's presentation was you felt like you just watched the movie and you were in good hands now it doesn't mean that if you come in and you've got you know a one hour presentation that that's going to be the best because that might you might lose your audience in that hour the attention span thing again so it's a combination of factors it's not just preparing it's not just being the hungriest it's it's also knowing how to sell to your audience. You know, that's part of selling, right? It's Absolutely. like a, a stand-up, you know, might be brilliant for seven minutes, but after t- 12 minutes, you've lost interest. There's this this fall-off point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that was an incredible experience. And, and the other moral of the story was, I remember talking about it with Mark and Albert and Ron and just saying, guys, let's take a chance on these guys. I feel it. We all felt it. Let's do it. Let's gamble. And we did, and we, we got tremendous results. doesn't always work out that way, but it was fun to do that. That was really fun. you got to take risks. I hope you don't mind at this stage of the podcast, but I know it's a late in the podcast to do this, but I think it's important. Do you mind if I just, for a little bit, I go way, way, way back and just take me to 
how you grew up and mm. what your situation was where you were. We already know your father sure. and, and being in the shadow of your dad. And we already know yeah. that obviously his career was probably the inspiration to get into the entertainment business in some way, shape, or form. Right. But take me back how it was growing up in that situation. Of course. And take me back to the first thing that happened in the journalism time of your life where you said, I want to be in the actual film and television side of the business. Well, it's been a long and complex journey, but I, you have to understand that our, I start this way. Our dinner table was a, uh, like a classroom. You, you show up at the dinner table. And my dad would be trying out these hypotheticals because he went on to do this after the CBS years, which I'll talk about in a minute. But he later on in his life uh, oversaw these incredible seminars on public television. And he would take a, an issue and, and put all these famous people around a big conference table and film it. And the issue might be something like this. <clears throat> There's a candidate running for president he wins he's won on it on a whole anti-abortion ticket you're a reporter you find out the president who is in office right now has had his wife had an abortion 25 years ago and he got into office on an anti-abortion ticket two rights collide the right to privacy and the first amendment right to know should you report that story? And you said, and Dad, I'm four. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so at the dinner table, by the way, the other thing was our dinner table was never just the family. There were always guests. Max Frankel was the editor of the Sunday New York Times. He lived down the street. Uh, famous people were constantly in our house. Edward R. Murrow to Walter Cronkite to Dan Rather. And it was the family was never enough. Edward R. Murrow was in your, the, in, in, in at the your dinner table. Yeah. Now, I was very young with him, but now you would have to sort of sing for your supper. And you'd say, well, you know, it seems relevant because it sort of shows that the president wasn't really forthright, but his wife has a right to privacy. So here's where I come out on it. And you're 11 years old and you think that's normal. Now, what it did to me, which I think kind of like uh, when I go back and really examine it closely. Uh, it was a very it was a very intense environment, and the way I got attention was by being funny. I would crack the joke. Um, I've never told anybody this story, but there was there was one time when I came home from a weekend in the country. Uh, my parents had a tiny little house up in the Berkshires, and came home and the house had been robbed, and the police came to the house, and I thought it would be funny if I told the cops that I didn't know who this man was my father <laughs> and he was furious you know grabbed me by the arm and said, this is not a time to get around but i went for the joke and so <laughs> i was constantly going for the joke because that's how i got attention and then later i veered into entertainment because i just wasn't as serious as he was and i wanted to carve my own path and 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 all that kind of connected um but 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 it was an intense environment to grow up in, but it was also one where you learned incredible ethics and you learned how important it was to examine everything, to be slightly suspicious, to be slightly cynical, 
And, um, you know, uh, it, it may have been very serious, but it was an incredible education, I guess, is what I would say. And I, and I want to paint my father out as being a guy who didn't know how to fun, have fun. He, he took us to Giant Games and Yankee Stadium and Met Games in Long Island and, and Nick Games. And, and, you know, he was not such a sober presence. But I will say this. His idea of a, of, a, of a good time on a Sunday afternoon was to retire to the sun parlor with a copy of the Constitution. That's who he was. And, you know, it was an incredible experience, but it kind of pushed me in a different direction. To answer your question of when I actually wanted to make, you know, crossover, I was at the L.A. Times in 1987, and I was working in a cubicle in a windowless building, which was the newsroom of the L.A. Times. And I would drive out every day to interview, you know, 25 and 30-year-olds in giant offices with assistants and all these perks. And they were doing really creative things. And, and it, just, it just became very apparent to me that I didn't want to write about the business. I wanted to be in it, which I tried to do when I was back there being a concert promoter. But then I abandoned that to go on the more righteous path. I will tell you a story that connects to Jerry Weintraub, which I've never told. And uh, it, it really is the inner workings. This is how show business works. So I'm at the LA Times. Just want you to know, normally when anybody at, tells you in a meeting, this is how show business works, 99.9% .9 of the time, they don't know how fucking show business works. <laughs> but this is this 1% okay. of 1% of the time where actually somebody but, says it. Let me and they actually know how show business let, let works. Let me revise and say this is how I learned how show business works. <laughs> um, so so uh, as I was, I had been at the LA Times for a couple of years, and I started to having some preliminary conversations with Brian and Ron about coming to their new company, Imagine. But it wasn't really happening. The deal wasn't happening. The offer wasn't coming. But why were they interested in a journalist? There was a window of time where, where journalists were perceived as really good fodder for development executives. So there was Linda Opes, who's a working producer now, be a great guest for you, who came from the New York Times. There was a guy named Dale Pollack who left the LA Times and went to work for David Geffen, I think. Michael London left the LA Times and went to work for Simpson Bruckheimer. And there was me. These were the four people that their timing was kind of perfect and, and we all landed in the business. For whatever reason, it was kind of sexy. I'm going to hire a journalist. And then it stopped uh, for a lot of complicated reasons. But um, when I was uh, 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 coming out of, uh, uh, of the paper. You're talking about how the deal was going slow. Yeah. So, so, so Brian, <laughs> sorry, lost my train of thought. Brian and Ron were, were kind of flirting with me, but it wasn't happening. And I, I talked to a friend of mine, David Kirkpatrick who at the time was running Weintraub Entertainment Group. And I said, David, I, you know, I don't know what to do here. I've had two or three really good meetings. I feel like they're going to offer me this job, but, but they haven't come up with the offer yet. He said, uh, stand by, I'll call you back. And what he did, which I later found out, was incredible. He called Brian. He said, are you talking to David Friendly? And Brian said, yes. And he said, are you going to hire him? Because if you're not going to hire him, we're going to hire him here at Weintraub Entertainment, which 
They may have had ambitions to do that, but at that point, I didn't know that. And I got the offer the next day. <laughs> and that's a true story. And so people want to have to fight for something, you know, and that's part of, again, we're going back to sales, but it's like when you have a house, if you're trying to sell your house, you better have more than one buyer to close, right? You've got to have two buyers. So that was a great lesson uh, to me about not just show business, but about human nature, which is nobody really wants what they can have. They want what they don't think they can get or it's going to be difficult to get. It's true. And you better have two buyers or you better be the kind of person who can say no if you want to say no. And normally when you say no, people want to turn the no's into yeses. And, and I owe a debt of gratitude to David, who I don't even know where he is today. He's not so much in the business. I think he's back east. But he did me a huge favor by doing that. That was a generous thing. So, so it's not everybody's not just out for themselves all the time, which is the cliche, the perception. But he really helped me. By the way, that job was the most important job of my career, was going to work with a magazine, period. For those of you listening, you probably are realizing this is probably the least I've ever talked in an interview <laughs> because – I know about journalism and how you're supposed to listen and be a better listener, and I'm right. trying to be a better listener. I want to I tell you one interesting uh, button to the story about my dad. So when I finally decided I was going to go in the business and actually got my, this job offer, I was quite uh, anxious about telling my father that I was going into the cesspool of show business. And... I got the nerve up on a Sunday or something, and I, I, I got to call him and tell him I'm doing it. So I, I got him on the phone. I said, Dad, you know, something's happened. I'm very excited about. I'm going to go work for Ron Howard, Brian Grazer at this company. Imagine you've never heard of them, and I'm leaving the L.A. Times. And his response was, is this something you're passionate about? I said, yeah, it's something I really care about. And he goes, then I think you'll do a great job, and you should go do it. And he always said my whole life, you can be whatever you want to be. Just do it well. You know, there's no, uh, you don't have to be this. You don't have to be that. And in, but in my mind, I didn't really believe him. And to the point where I thought he was going to react negatively. And he was just proud of me for being able to make that choice and, and, and go for it, you know? And, and before he died, he got to see this movie I did, uh, Courage Under Fire, which is still, I think, one of the best movies I've produced and really uh, got me, got my producing career started, where it's the first movie I had produced by credit on was with Ed Zwick directing, who was a, an incredibly talented director, has become a good friend, a man I respect tremendously, and was very demanding as a director. And I really, like, learned the job on that movie and my dad loved it. He just he just loved the movie. It was about you know I don't know if any of you have ever even seen it. I love it's the Denzel movie. Washington, and it's about friendly fire, and it's about all these things that would appeal to my dad. And I was so glad that he got to see that because you know sure he'd have been proud of the success of Big Mama's House, but that movie wouldn't necessarily have been his cup of tea. But he loved Courage Under Fire, and he would talk about it all the time. My son did this movie. You've got to see it. And that, that was, I, I can't tell you 
what that meant to me. Much more than, oh, you wrote a great story for Newsweek. I read it. You know, whatever. I, I knew it was still, like, in the shadow of the old man. This was me on my own in a new field. And that, that felt really liberating and great. It's just a great, great movie, and uh, um, I'll never forget that movie. I learned my, um, I learned another rule about producing on that movie, and, and 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 this is a story I've told a number of times. But we were shooting. This happens all the time when you're making a movie. We were shooting an incredibly dramatic scene with Matt Damon, who had lost 42 pounds to play this drug addicted uh, soldier, and he's being interrogated by denzel and and, and starts to come out things are starting to come out in the story and very intense very dramatic i mean the tension is so thick in that they're sitting at a little table outside and every take is getting blown by these planes that are flying because we're right near an airport a local airport and you can see the tower off in the distance and after like the tenth blown take of takes that would have made it into the movie, their performances were so good. Ed takes this headphones off. He's got these Sony, you know, headphones on, and he throws them down and he stamps on the <laughs> headphones, shatters them. And he says, he looks at me and he goes, You're the fucking producer. Do something about this. Again, under stress, under duress, my first movie as a producer. I grabbed this PA by the by the collar. I said, "Do you have a walkie-talkie?" He says, "Yes." I said, "Go over to that tower, like a thousand yards away. You go up in the tower, and you ask politely the guy in the tower if he could hold the planes until we complete takes, because it's about five minutes to do the scene." And the kid runs over there, and he goes up there, and he's on the walkie, and it works. It works. And they hold the planes, we get the take, and I get the high five again from Zwick. And again, under extreme duress, I was so scared when he breaks the headphones. Like he just he hadn't really gone to that place yet. But he got a he, he got a solution out of it. Again, I guess I guess what's coming out here, there's a theme here. It's like I gotta be pressed up against the wall to do my best, I guess. I don't know. Is that true of everybody? I don't think it's true of everybody. <laughs> I, I haven't pressed you up against the wall in this interview, yeah, and you're doing fantastic. Doing okay. <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 I have so many stories like that, and I think, I think that's the way to teach people about the business. And, you know, just to be serious for a second, it's not about generalities. Tell stories, which is what you're doing, and people will begin to understand the job through the anecdote. That's um, the best way to teach. It's so true. I hope you don't mind. I want to talk more about your relationship with your dad because. Sure. What do you charge? <laughs> it's free like the internship you had. Okay. Can you prescribe? I wish you could prescribe some pills for me. I could use some, but they're different kind of pills. So the relationship father and son is so complicated. And as your father got older and before he died you did something that you finally felt that he was proud of but you know he's later on in life and every time you see him you probably think to yourself as i think about jerry and i think about the late chris thompson who i interviewed here two months ago 
you have this feeling sometimes, like when I met Jerry and I talked with Jerry, I really had this feeling this is the last time I'm going to see him, even though I had every intention of him doing the podcast. Same with Chris Thompson. I interviewed him here. And is there a point when you have that relationship with your dad and you're farther along in your career and he's farther along in his that every time you see him, you think, is this the last time I'm going to see him? Well, in the case with my own dad, he, he got sick and had some issues with strokes and it was a long tail as opposed to a short tail. So once he was sick and I was in LA and he was in New York, you d- I definitely had those thoughts when I would go up to the house in Riverdale and I'd see him and I said, I wonder if this is, wonder if this is going to be the last time I actually see him in person. Um, the, the great thing about my, my dad for me was, you know, he lived to 82. He did everything he could have possibly done in journalism and more. He had a, he had a great family and, and uh, you know, he, came from very simple background upbringing new york providence nothing was expected of him and yet he scaled these incredible heights and you know on some level for me getting that movie made having my name on it as the producer meant that in some small way i kind of measured up i think that was the pressure i put on myself throughout my life as a kid and um a lot of it was just in my head. He wasn't demanding anything, but it, but it was pressure I put on myself. Um, and I think that's what I try to, with my own kids, I have, a, I have a son who's 20 years old and a daughter is 21. Both are at USC. And, and I really tried to change the dynamic there a little bit in that I tell people my, my relationship with my father was a handshake, not a hug. It was a different time, different generation. A lot of handshakes, not a lot of hugs. And so raising my children, I was always like the hugger, you know, very much more uh, affectionate and and trying to uh, sort of make them feel uh, as as comfortable with me as possible, not, not, not allow that sort of distance of the traditional father-son relationship, which, to be fair, was much more prevalent in that time, sure would. I don't know what it was like with your father. That's what it was like with mine. How many times did your father tell you that he loved you? Well, I don't know how many times he said those words, but he demonstrated that love, you know, constantly. Whether he was sitting at the dining room table with me and both of us were terrible at math and not giving up and trying to help me with my fractions or showing up at a, at a football game at, at Riverdale Country Day where I wasn't even starting, but he came anyway. He showed me that. But how many times did he say those things? Not many. That was not his style. And I bet it's just the opposite with your children. Yeah, it is just the opposite. And I think you react. You, uh, you kind of go the other direction. And maybe there's an argument that a firmer hand, who knows where the middle ground is, you know? I think who? that's what I always worry with my kids. You hear all these stories about people who nobody said they loved you, nobody hugged them, and they become successful like you. I'm wondering if I'm going to be loving and hug my kids if they're going to be homeless and saying, Daddy, did you send me a check? I've decided I'm going to just hang out here in this Well, I also think, you know, it's important. Like, my parents were divorced when I was about 11 years old, and a a woman came into our house that my father got remarried to who was a schoolteacher who literally changed my life. Like, I was headed in a very bad way, wrong direction, doing a lot of 
illegal things and probably would have gone, you know, gone to jail or something had it not been for her. She was a saint and I got tremendous affection and, and positive support. And she was a school teacher and she helped me turn my grades around and got me interested in books. So it was a little bit of both. That's really fascinating because normally the divorce is the hole that's blown through you right? and you never recover. And normally when a a woman comes into the household, it's like, she's the enemy. She must've been an extraordinary woman. She was and is, she's still alive. Her name is Ruth friendly. She was a school teacher in Scarsdale. She's over 90. She won't let me tell you her age. She drives into the city every night. She goes to the opera still drives herself around she's got a busier calendar than you or i put together and she's like a saint you know and you haven't talked a lot about your mom no now my mom was a very talented artist married to my father for 20 years went to risd rhode island school of design used to draw the family christmas cards every year you know beautiful and was a very very loving very good person who did not hold up well under the strain of being married to Fred Friendly. Now, some of that was him, some of that was her, but they were married for 20 years, and then she moved into the city to the Lincoln Towers, where you grew up. And where I had an apartment for many years. And just to show you how times have changed, when I was probably 13 years old, I used to take the subway by myself into the city from Riverdale, 242nd Street to... 79th, or I used to get off at 72nd Street, walk down to Lincoln Towers, have dinner with her, and take the subway home myself. Meanwhile, I'm in my kid's schoolyard. It's got <laughs> 10-foot fences all around. If I don't see him for one second, I'm like, where is he? Hey, my kids weren't allowed to, like, ride their bikes in the neighborhood because, you know, by themselves. It was not allowed. So it's different different. Did times, your mom remarry? My mom never remarried, but she, she found peace in her life, and she she needed to be... You know, in order to survive, she needed to get out of that. It was just too intense for her. You know, it was a very public life, you know, and she needed more privacy. And she and I had a very good relationship right to the very end. And and in the end, she had a pretty decent relationship with my stepmother, which is also unusual. They got along well because, as I said, everybody had the best intentions. But uh, it's funny what you say. What I remember... When I was maybe 11 or 12, there was a song Cher had on the radio. This is what happened, you know. And it was called, I think the title of it was You Better Sit Down, Kids. And it was it was a song about a woman telling her child that she was leaving. And that's what my mother was singing. And it made me, you know, I would just burst into tears every night in my bed. WMCA in New York, they would play You Better Sit Down, Kids. And I, I haven't talked about that. I'm... 59 now what is that 47 years i still remember it like i'm in the bed listening to the song it was devastating do you remember that song i do you do remember i remember half breathe i remember all the songs it's not in my mind that song would exist i am an elderly man Cher was a pop star you guys probably don't remember yes she had some good songs fantastic song gypsies tramps and thieves but you know she just like became such a spectacle people forget she was actually they were pretty decent musical acts right talking about our theme here of taking all your talents and going for it it should be noted that she also won an academy award for moonstruck wow she sure did now let me say this and i'm curious to you just to digress for a second please i'm all about digression 
in your life that affected you equal to that, to what I just told you, a piece of music that changed your life, or when you think of it, you get emotional, and why? The song that comes to mind, as many people on this podcast know, I was married uh, long ago, and my wife passed away after eight months, and our wedding song was always and forever. And that's a song whenever I hear it, and I just heard it the other day. Recorded originally by... Heatwave. That's right, Always and Forever Heatwave. And I hear that, and there's something that happens. But also, when I was in college, and I was just starting my freshman year in Sleeper Hall at Boston University, there was this football player that was in the room next to mine. who was African-American. And he had this turntable and this musical setup that was so loud. And over and over again, he would play the song Wishing on a Star by Rose Royce. And I thought to myself, you know, that song and one that I played over and over again that meant the most to me, which I have the poster signed behind my desk, was Dream On. And to me, it was always about, you know, after that tragedy, it was always about, you know, in my later life, figuring out how you recover from the tragedy when you're thinking that everything is going to go a certain way and it doesn't go and you have to readjust your life and you have to be flexible. But early on it was about being a dreamer and not being afraid to, to follow whatever your dream was. Like you said, uh, you know, the, interestingly enough, the cinematic equivalent to the share song was, and all these things happened around the time it was happening to me, which is bizarre, but it was Kramer versus Kramer. Oh, which is a classic film with Dustin Hoffman. And and I remember watching that movie and, and watching Dustin Hoffman trying to make eggs for his kid because Meryl Streep has left. It just breaks your heart. It just breaks your heart. And, and it was particularly powerful for me. It was a little bit later. It wasn't happening as it was happening the way the song was, but it brought back all those memories instantly. And I think that's kind of the gold of, of a great film or a great song. And I think we're losing that. And I'm sorry about that. It makes me very sad because uh, all power to the Marvel movies and fantastic numbers. And we are in a business and everybody has a right to make a fortune. But when I saw the deer hunter, just total digression, I came out of the theater and I came home and told my parents, if I was drafted, I was going to go to Canada. I wasn't going to be the guy in the ditch sticking his head above the water. John Savage. Yeah, I wasn't going to be me. And that movie made the decision for me. And I I think that's the power of the medium. And, uh, you know, if if Kramer versus Kramer made people rethink divorce, like that's that's a power. That's that's a fantastic creative power. And I I worry sometimes that we're, we're losing some of that. How's that for a digression? It was fantastic. I'm going to make you tell me one thing. Yes. Take me back to the day that your mom and dad told you that they were getting a divorce. How did it happen? (laughs) Well, they didn't have to tell me because we had two staircases in our house. There was a front staircase near the front door, and there was a back staircase near the back door. And they would be in the kitchen fighting, and I would be at the top of the stairs listening to the fights. So I would hear the arguments reverberating and it was clear to me and this is something you hear from children of divorce sometimes is that when they finally said they were parting ways it's almost a relief because of everything you've heard leading up to that point so 
it, it didn't it wasn't like it was some big surprise it, i knew it was coming from hearing those voices come up the stairs now i'll tell you something else again digression i'm renaming uh, this podcast digression, digression with barry Katz. we had help in our house uh and we had an african-american maid named katie who lived at our house for four or five days a week who i became closer to than my mother honestly at some point because she was present and she took care of me and uh she had great soul and we would sit in her she had a small room at the end of the hall much smaller than my little bedroom and i would go in her room and we would watch television together very often comedies variety shows whatever she wanted to watch and later in life i kind of connected her a little bit to big mama she was my big mama right and i was very comfortable with her and i was also very comfortable at school playing basketball uh i went to a private school in new york and, and there were a lot of a lot of uh a lot of jewish basketball players there were some a lot there were a lot of uh, there were kids and there was a dorm so there were minority kids that were brought in who 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 could who could go to the school for free and they would open the gym on the weekends and i would play basketball every weekend with all these kids that were there on scholarship and um you know maybe it sounds a little preposterous now but i was very 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 comfortable with african americans like growing up because i had this kind of big mom in the house and i was friends with all these kids in the dorm and then later out here i ended up working with martin lawrence three times eddie murphy i worked with denzel i worked with so many african-americans and i was comfortable immediately and that's something you don't hear people talk about a lot but i would say that the divorce may have been you know a very challenging thing to go through but it it created the ability in me to work with all different kinds of people comfortably so the thing that you were most afraid of the most painful experience in your life that might be the thing that makes you capable of producing three Martin Lawrence movies, you know? It always is. The thing that blows the whole three is the, things that cha- the thing that shapes you. Yeah. All right, let's do a little six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name of somebody, and you just tell me what comes to mind. Could be one word, could be a story, could be anything. Sure. Pierce Brosnan. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I've had the, I had the pleasure of working with Pierce twice. And the thing I love about him is is uh, he's just one of the, he's like a he's like he's like a a wonderful uh, cashmere blanket in your house that you love to put on when the fire's roaring. He's just the most comfortable guy to be around, and he's great looking, and he's funny, and he's he's a a legitimate friend of mine, which I can only say about him and maybe one or two other actors. But he is my friend, and I have enormous respect for him. Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of astounding is the word that comes to mind uh living proof that you can be anything you want that's about all i'm getting (laughs) michael j fox michael j fox uh i I have enormous respect for his courage i did a movie with him that was called for lover money that was about a concierge before he was sick or knew that he had parkinson's he was a he was a a very generous person then and an even more generous person now and 
and I just think he has all the all the best intentions and is is a really fine person. I have enormous respect for him. Meg Ryan. <laughs> well, I uh, I thought we did a, a very smart piece of casting with her. The first thing I think of is her in a helmet in Courage Under Fire. When you say Meg Ryan, I think of Meg with the short haircut and going to the airport and picking her up myself, a direct connection to the concert promotion days where the transpo captain said to me on Courage Under Fire, no, we'll go get her. I said, no, no, I'm going to go pick her up. I want her to see I've got her back. And nobody gave me that. And she couldn't believe that I came to the airport to pick her up. And Dennis Quaid and she were married at the time. And he and I would go off and play golf on the weekends together. So that's my, that's what I think of when you say Meg Ryan. Jerry Garcia. Jerry Garcia. What a strange, long, strange trip it's been. So the Grateful Dead and the Allman Brothers were two of the most popular bands for me when I was in high school. We would, we would, go to that dorm I mentioned earlier and turn the speakers around, play the speakers out the window after school, and it was always the Allman Brothers and the Dead. And Jerry Garcia wound up becoming this kind of figure in my life. I, I listened to him in high school. I went to see the Dead a few times. Uh, I booked him at Northwestern, and on the day that my son had that somewhat painful procedure newborns have. Yes, at the bris, the, the circumcision. Bris, the circumcision. We came out of that. I was holding my son. I got in the car, turned on the radio, and the news came on that Jerry Garcia had died that morning. So he has been. A, he was a part of my life uh, consistently to the point where I actually had tickets to go see the final dead shows but because he wasn't in it i ended up not going through with it not going up to santa clara to see them but they were they were part of the sort of the sound he was sort of the soundtrack of my life Jerry Garcia. walter Matthau. oh my god um my my first thought about walter was we were doing out to sea and uh this will sometimes happen you have actors for a certain period of time and then you run the risk of breaking into their turnaround, which is a no-no. You have to give them and say, port. they call it portal to portal. Maybe it's 11 hours from the time you wrap to when they have to come back. And we needed his permission to go a little longer. And uh, I went to him. I was dispatched to go to him and ask him if he would stay an extra hour. And he said, I noticed you have a satellite dish in your trailer. I said, yes. He said, is there any action on tonight? And I said, well, have you mentioned it? Like, Cincinnati is playing Tulane. Who's favored? And I said, uh, well, I looked in the paper. Tulane is minus two and a half. He goes, all right, I'll stay. I'll get a bet down. And he made a bet, and I let him go in my trailer, and he stuck around. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of Walter Matthau. Oh, and a Walter Matthau joke. He walked up to me once on the set. We were shooting on a cruise ship. The movie Out to Sea took place on a cruise ship, and we shot for 10 days in the Caribbean on an actual cruise ship. And he walked up to me, and he said, did you know Beethoven was so deaf, he thought he was painting? That was the joke. <laughs> <laughs> I love that for its simplicity. And last thing about Walter Matthau, when he died, uh, he had a uh, a poker game at his house, and I love poker, and he, he showed me the poker room once, and, all these guys had a little leather cup 
that had the name of the player in masking tape on the cup. And someone said, Mathau, Carson, all these famous people. And um, when he passed, his assistant gave me the cup with his name on it. I still have it. I keep pens in it. And it says Mathau on it. Wow. That's a lot on Walter Mathau, right? I loved him. Loved him. Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore, I, 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 I cannot tell you. She's like she's like the female Ron Howard. The the focus, the attention, the work ethic. Uh and she's just there to do the job and enormous talent. That's what comes to mind. Just enormous, enormous talent. And and the the job she did on the Still Alice, I think, you know, was so deserving and I'm very proud of her. Eddie Murphy. Might be the funniest person I've ever met, period. Like, you know, I tell people this. It's the craziest thing to say. If you ever want to see the genius of this man, which is evident throughout history, but you can go back and look at the outtakes of Nutty Professor. They ran them over the end credits. And every time I watch that, I am reduced to tears. It's the funny. He's playing all the characters, and they're all cracking up. The takes are being blown. His ad libs are hilarious, and you you realize maybe the funniest person I've ever met. Dan Rather. Well, Dan Rather was my favorite when I was growing up. Like he was the guy that I thought was the coolest anchor. I liked the suspenders. I liked his look. I liked him stylistically. And it was, uh, he was an important, influential figure in my life. He, uh, he made me realize that journalists didn't have to be square. Greg Kinnear. Okay. One of my, probably my, one of my very, very best friends. And I said I would only say this about two actors. I think Pierce and Greg. They're, they're genuine friends of mine. Uh, Greg is somebody that uh, I always laugh with, uh, whether he, he, you know, we, we play golf together. We hang out. He's of the same generation. We both came out of this channel called Movie Time. I was doing a talk show like you're doing. He was doing talk soup, and we became great friends and remain very, very close friends. Denzel Washington. Serious. Serious guy. Uh, I'll tell a story about Denzel. We were on the aforementioned Courage Under Fire, and, and we decided to shoot 10 straight days so that we could all have a break at Thanksgiving. This is a thing you can do in scheduling. Instead of, like, we were on six-day weeks, so instead of, like, doing regular six-day weeks. We went 10 straight nights. It was in the desert in El Paso. It never got above 15 degrees. And Ed Zwick was the kind of director who said, if I'm going to be there, you're going to be there. So you worked from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., and you stayed. And it was snowing and cold and horrible. And at that point, I wasn't really sure I wanted to be a producer. So at the end of uh, that 10-day stint, we we shot this sequence where – Uh, There was a gag on the railroad track and a car Mustang collides with a train and it was very intense. And, and, and that great actor from that scene on the train tracks was Lou diamond Phillips. 
he was fantastic. And uh, anyway, on that day, on the last day of the 10 days, uh, somebody kind of, I think it was Ed, whispered in my ear that Denzel had a plane going back to L.A. and there might be room for me and I should go ask Denzel, which was kind of hard as a young guy. Like I, I hadn't, don't think I'd ever been on a private plane. Like, this is a jet. And he was a method actor, and he was in character. And this was a very intense character. And I went up to him, and I said, in between takes, hey, I heard that you might have a plane. Is it possible there'd be room for me? And he looked up at me, and he just stared at me. And it was just dead quiet. And he gave me this look like, couldn't believe I was even asking and he just like gauged my reaction and then he broke into this big smile and he's like of course come along <laughs> and it was just you saw the power of the man he made me so uncomfortable for just asking and then he gave me rise but I saw the power of it afterward and, and by the way uh, just an enormous talent I, I love his work there's very few people who I would see every piece of work they do and it's his because when I met him briefly on sets what it seems like every second of every moment of every day he is a thousand percent prepared and in it and there's no messing around he's tough though i'll say this about him like he doesn't let you off easy if you say something stupid he's going to tell you how stupid it is and you know he kind of has you on guard <laughs> a little bit which i like about him and the thing about denzel i'll i'll tell one other little anecdote about that scene so the Mustang hits this oncoming train, and it's it's an actual, as we call it, a gag. A stunt is a gag. I don't know where that came from, but it's called a gag. And so when the train hits the Mustang, and we, we knew this from rehearsal and everything, that they would sort of, like, bounce off each other, and the, and the Mustang would, would sort of come back on the track. And the idea was that Denzel... As soon as the train hit, he's supposed to go off the tracks into the woods there because it, it could be dangerous. And because he's Denzel, he, he sees the thing collide, and he just stares. And if you watch the shot, the movie, the train comes, the car comes back, it's on fire, and it just goes right by him. He's like a foot away from it, which he was not supposed to do, but made the shot get him. That's a great actor, right? What instinct? What instinct? Me? The Jew from Riverdale, I'm running into the woods. <laughs> <laughs> Not walking, running. A few more, the Beach Boys. Ah, well, I learned a great lesson from the Beach Boys. They came to Northwestern. They were supposed to play on a Saturday. The place was sold out. I'm ready to do my introduction. They come to me 15 minutes before the show. The road manager, and he says, little problem, not huge. Mike Love, the lead singer, didn't make the plane. But everybody else is here. <laughs> and he says, you know, we can either go on and play without Mike or we'll come back in two weeks and do two shows for the price of one. And, and again, cocky, young, maybe 19 years old. I said, we didn't hire some of the Beach Boys. We hired the Beach Boys. So we'll see in two weeks. I had to get up on stage and tell this crowd of 10,000 people that there was going to be no concert tonight. But anybody who was there could come to both shows for the, for free at the same time. And because they were college kids, it really wasn't a problem. 
I'm surprised you didn't say, listen, no, what's going to happen is these guys are going to play tonight and you're going to give me one show in two weeks <laughs> with everybody. That probably is why you wound up doing what you did <laughs> and I wound up doing what I did. That was probably a better solution, right? Jack Lemon. Jack Lemon was just pure class, but very hard. Unlike Mathau, hard to, hard to really get to know. Uh, elegant, professional, right there, happy to engage, but didn't get a lot out of it. Martin Lawrence. Uh, brilliant, complicated, unpredictable, hilarious. Little Miss Sunshine. Trust your instincts. Little Miss Sunshine was a movie that every studio and every specialty division passed on the script, and we bought it for, I think, $150,000 at the time, and it became the biggest success of my career, and everybody else had passed on it. Trust your instincts. Fantastic. Tell us about the movie that is coming out that you are that you wrote, directed, produced, Brought coffee to people on, drove the people around. <laughs> to do this. Called Sneakerheads. Tell us about okay. that. So Sneakerheads is a documentary that examines the subculture of, of collecting kicks. And uh, we don't know what collecting kicks are. We're yeah. Like, well, sneakers are called kicks. That's the the. Uh, did all of you know that? Okay, I'm retarded. I'm 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 special. I'm sorry. Um. And this this documentary happened because I stumbled into an Adidas original store in New York while we were making The Honeymooners with Mike Epps and Cedric the Entertainer, one of the biggest flops in my career. <laughs> but I loved I loved making it. I had a blast making it. And I, and I, was, I have no idea when I heard that you were doing The Honeymooners with Mike Epps and Cedric the Entertainer. And Gabrielle Union, who and, I love. And no disrespect to and Mike John Epps Leguizamo. and Cedric the Entertainer and, and John Leguizamo. Johnny Legs, as we called him. But I think to myself, you know, Jackie Gleason <laughs> is a fucking genius. It's like you... And you're doing it, the African-American, I thought to myself, what is, so I thought sometimes you do things for the money, and sometimes you do things yeah. for the respect. Will you just tell our audience, and I know you're going to kill me for saying this, what Why? were you thinking? Here's what I was thinking. The studio called, and they said, your script, The Honeymooners, we'll make it, but we want you to do it African-American. You've done a lot of movies with African-American cast. We think this one would be great. I'm like, this is going to get the movie made. <laughs> Maybe it's not a bad idea. Not my best moment thinking, but, you know, it was the biggest fee I ever got was on that movie. It was the one time my fee reached this certain level. I'm not going to talk about money. And I got there, and I knew if, if they made that movie, that was going to be my quote, and it was. And you do things for lots of reasons, sometimes the wrong reasons. In that, in that case, it was a bad decision. And I have to own it. It was me as well. I could have easily said, I think that's a terrible idea. I didn't. We went and made the movie. And I watch it, and I still think it's funny. That's how crazy I am. I enjoyed making well, there it. Are I love those guys. But there are funny, funny moments in, in there. Yeah, of course there's, there's funny, funny moments. In it, but now, not a good idea. Now, knowing what you know now about the movie, you're there. You get the offer of that quote, the highest quote you've ever gotten. But you can see into the future, and you can see exactly what's going to happen with the movie. Do you still take the offer? No, absolutely not. Failure really hurts. Uh, 
it hurts you personally and it hurts your career. You become kind of, you go from the hot guy to the cold guy. And then it's, you know, as my father used to say, it's what have you done for me lately? You come back with something good, like Little Miss Sunshine, all of a sudden they don't even remember the honeymoon. You know, everybody's forgotten it. But failure definitely, definitely gets in the way. Um, so back to the movie. So I'm in New York making the African-American Honeymooners, which we all both agree was not the best idea. And I stumble into Adidas Originals, and I see a pair of, of uh, Adidas Superstars, but it's the Run DMC model. It's a custom superstar. And I think I'm looking at a pair of shoes that are 35 years old. But what I didn't know, it was what they call a retro. It was. They brought the sneaker back out. It was chocolate brown. And I said, I am buying these sneakers. And I took them home, and I started looking around on the computer. At, at I just typed in Adidas Superstars, and I saw there were websites devoted just to this one shoe, and there were blogs. And I just immediately, it was, like a, it was like a cloud right in front of me. I'm going to do a documentary about this if I ever have the time. Simultaneously, things got a little quiet in the business for me. There was nothing in production. I was used to like movie to movie to movie to movie. And I started to go a little stir crazy. And I thought, if I can just raise some money, I can just go out and make this. And I'm going to do that. And so that was the beginning of what I call my do-it-yourself mentality which, by the way, fed my TV show, Queen of the South, and it fed my movie, IT, because none of those projects really involved the traditional studio. Awesome. Awesome. When does that come out? It's coming out August 7th in New York and L.A. I never thought we'd have a theatrical. I thought it was just going to be SVOD. Uh, but it got such a good response. We got picked up by Gravitas, the distributor at South by Southwest, and we're opening in New York, Chicago, and L.A. for like two weeks. And then you can catch it on Vimeo or if you're an AT&T U-verse subscriber, you can see it on there. And then eventually it'll be on everything, iTunes and all that. Fantastic. Last three questions. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how did you use it to bring yourself to the next level? It's hmm. a great question. It's a hard question because any real career, in my opinion, has had success, failure, and in-between. Anybody who hasn't experienced all three of those things hasn't really had a, a real career. Somebody who wants you to believe that every movie was a hit is not really telling the truth. Somebody wants you to believe that it's all been failure, hasn't been around very long. So if you've had any career of real duration, you've had all three. Uh, I've had, you know some pretty big disappointments. I'd say the biggest one for me was I got an early read on The Help. This was really difficult for me. Uh, the and, movie The Help. Yeah, and I went to, I sought out the director, and it, it was a little bit in the embryonic stages, and it wasn't clear what was going to happen. And I went and had lunch with Tate Taylor, and I pitched him on me producing the movie and they hadn't really decided whether I, they would do it with me and i got nervous i, I got nervous i was going to lose out and i went to see stacy snyder at dreamworks and they were already going a different direction and by doing that i kind of alienated the the 
the team there. And it was not me in my finest hour. My intentions were all good. I didn't handle myself the best way I could, and I didn't get to produce it. And it was a book that I just, I just loved and would have loved to have been part of that. It was a, it was a loss. But didn't Stacy Snyder, who's the president of DreamWorks, didn't she know why you were coming into the office to meet her? Oh, yeah. She knew. She knew what I wanted. So then but, how could you? But she, she just, you know, I, they couldn't make it work. You know, it wasn't going to happen with me. No I matter know. what I did. I know. So why did she take the meeting? I don't even remember specifically if I called and said, I need to come talk to you about this project, or I just came in and this is what we talked about. But it wasn't in the cards for me on that one. And it, and it, and it was, I felt like I was there early enough to have gotten there, and I didn't. And those are tough. Uh, another one was In the Line of Fire. That was it. I was, I was pitched In the Line of Fire at Imagine and passed and should not have, obviously. I'm not very good on failure because I don't dwell on it. I just don't. I move on. I, I, I can tell you lots more stories about wins. Well, we're going to talk about that yeah. in a second. But, I, but, but I, I think it's a very good question, but my brain isn't like sitting there replaying these things. I move on pretty well. I think you have to. Your proudest moment in show business. Um, I don't know if it was my proudest moment, but the most excited I probably ever was was uh, waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, two dogs on the bed. Both kids had come into the room, and we put on the announcement of the Academy Award nominations, and they said, Little Miss Sunshine, and there was a scream that came out uh, out the window where if you were in the neighborhood, you probably thought somebody was being murdered. But that was probably the most exciting moment. Awesome. And finally, what advice do you have for the young person growing up in a small town, not knowing what they're going to do with their life and how to get to the next level and have the kind of career that you have? And coincidentally, if there's talent out there, what advice do you have for the young actor or actress who's well, would, trying to I get to the say, next level as well? I would well? say it all applies to everything, which is, A, something I said earlier, trust your instincts and find your passion. If you're passionate about something and you believe in yourself, you can get others to to let you join the party. But if you don't have that passion and you don't believe in yourself, you will never make it. So when you walk in the room, you have to own it that you belong there and that, you know, this was destiny. And then you have to run through the wall and keep running through the wall. And, and the last piece of advice is just stay in the game. The minute you leave the table you cannot win but if you stay in the game you're not going to win every hand you're going to lose some hands you're going to win some hands but you will have your moment but if you if you walk away from it you can't win so keep playing that's what i say awesome <laughs> david friendly is this your first podcast my first podcast and i have to say barry you're an excellent interviewer and, and i found myself talking about things that I don't think I ever thought I would talk about on this show, so you must be pretty good at your job. Well, if I could be a pinhead of what you are in your job, at globalcashcard.com, and as promised, our friends there are giving away $100 to a lucky winner who listens to this podcast from the iTunes comment review industry standard page. I will flick my magic mouse here, and we will figure out who's going to win this week. 
This one is from Bodogulus, March 6, 2015. Reads, fascinating, insightful, and inspiring in the heading. Five stars. Thank you, sir or ma'am. Barry Katz is a hero for granting access to this inside look at how Hollywood works. His interviews are invaluable to any walk of life while also being incredibly entertaining. Thank you, Barry! Exclamation point. And thank you, Bedogulus. You just won a $100 gift card for your comments from Global Cash Card. A sneak ahead to me is when your wife comes home with groceries and she can't find room on the floor in the kitchen to put the groceries down because it's full of shoes and boxes, and that's when you know you got a problem. And that problem is being a sneak ahead. There's a handful of things that can define who you are without saying a word, and your shoes are one of those. Pro Ked. Chuck Taylor. Jordan. Air Force One. That first pair of sneakers changed the way that I looked at everything. Prior to the internet, if you were really a sneaker collector, you would have to travel to different cities to get certain models. Now it's like, oh, check Instagram. Okay, purchase, done. Sneakers are everywhere. The UPS man, he might have some chocolate Adidas on or Nikes. <laughs> Sneaker fanatics are lining up all over the country to grab a pair. It's the kids trying to emulate their heroes. How many pair do you have, personally? I stopped counting. After what? A thousand. After a thousand? How do we distinguish normal collecting from hoarding disorder? I have no idea how many shoes I even have anymore. I lost count. I have a binder and it has pictures of each shoe and which box they're in and it's super crazy. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to determine quite yet when enough is enough. Would you call it an obsession or an addiction? A disease. <laughs> that number changes every day, man. It's like the national debt. MJ, 88, 9, never gonna stop. Carolina Blue Kicks, hottest. The sneaker that's available today will probably be sold out tomorrow. Because people will come around like 2 o'clock a.m. and then people start lining up and then the hype just builds. People draw baseball bats. Cops start arresting kids. Kids have been sleeping out there for four days. They're not moving. You create a monster that needs to be fed. Kobe Jordan 8, hand signed by Kobe himself. This is the price of a uh, C-Class Mercedes. These are crack. I just got these, I might get a second one. I'm the only person alive with a shoe chain of all their signature shoes. Wrap your head around it, man. Yeah, yeah. So two pair, come on. I can't do this. Come on, 220. And I'll put you in a movie. All right, and as always, this is Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name and Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamer they have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune and 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrycats.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.